Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Everybody enjoy the week? Good weather? Get eaten alive by bugs? Yeah. I got to, it was great. A little, little bit part of the day, uh, one of the days this week, I got to play boats, right? With Mark uh, Lamont and his brother and nephew. And that was a great time. And so, uh, yeah. Anybody like to play boats? I love boats. It's fun stuff. Anyhow, so we had, we had a good time. Hey, I want to I draw your attention before we get started to life groups. This is how we do life um, together. Like on Sunday morning, we get an hour and I have a microphone. And so that's just what it is. And, and, and it's good. And, and we should be doing this. In fact, this is really critical. But uh, how we do community is by getting together in smaller groups and getting to know one another and, and growing in those areas. So we have a few. I just want to rattle them off. Uh, my group is going to be classic Christian literature. We're going to start with a more recent uh, piece written by Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place, which I think every Christian should read. Um, really, it's changed my perspective on a lot. So we're going to do that one. We'll do Pilgrim's Progress, um, The Imitation of Christ, a few different things. Um, they should be fairly easy. It's not, not going to be hard like... Uh, uh, church history one that we did this last year, but it should be great. Um, we're going to, with the women's study, uh, they'll be in the book of Acts going through the Joy of Living uh, series, and so that should be awesome. That's one of our, always one of our more popular uh, groups, and uh, those ladies just do so much for the church. So if you want to be a part of that, ladies, please, uh, that's Tuesday at, uh, at 1230. Um, so those are, that's a great study. We've got a men's life group and I'm really excited about this one because they're going to be dealing with sermon-based discussion. So that'll keep me on my toes. Um, uh, and uh, they'll be able to call me out on things they don't like and that'll be fun. So anyhow, uh, but no, it'll be a, that'll be a great time because that just brings, brings everything all together. I really like the sermon based discussion model. I think it's great. Um, apologetics for today is the, uh, will be on Wednesdays. That's um, Don De Palma's um, study, and uh, it, it's at Idlewild Pines Camp at, uh, from 5 to 7 in the evenings. Man, that, uh, they're using a, a Ron Rhodes book. Ron Rhodes is solid, and uh, apologetics is definitely a, a cool thing. Apologetics means uh, giving a defense of the faith, and so um, it's something that if, if you want to know what we believe or why we believe, or you know what we believe and why we believe it, but we want to be able to articulate it better, that would be uh, a good place to be. And then the story is going to be at Dennis Kavanaugh's house. I'm really excited about this. It's like almost a year long. It's like a 31 or 32 week uh, study that basically takes you through the entire, just the, the foundations of the scriptures from beginning to end. So it'll basically be a summary of the Bible from beginning to end all the way through. Um, so really, really great I'm super excited about that. We have some others that I'm trying to nail down uh, for sure, but um, the signups for what we have are out there. There may be uh, one or one or two more, probably just one more next week. Not sure, but um, and that would I think it's just going to be a, a, a ladies' prayer study. So, um, but anyhow, keep that uh, in your prayers and please consider being a part of that because uh, that's that's really how we do community together is is uh, to get to know each other in that way and and uh, and build each other up uh, through spiritual discussions. So uh, we are going to be in Luke chapter six. We're going to close up chapter 6 this week, 
And we'll go into uh, chapter 7 next week, because that's what follows chapter 6. Um, See, I can count at least that far. Uh, But we're going to do some construction work today. We're going to be building. We're all builders today, okay? Um, And and the job site that we're building on is pretty dangerous. There's falling debris, and it's heavy, uh, and it hurts if... uh, you know, so what, what's the what's the first thing that we need to do if we want to go to onto a job site? We need to put something on. Got to put on the hard hat, right? You got to put the hard hat on, otherwise you're gonna hurt your noggin. And so, now does anybody know this? What happens if you show up to the job site and you forgot your hard hat? You got to wear the pink hard hat. You have to wear the pink hard hat. This is the rules. It's on every job site. There's a pink hard hat. And if you don't bring your hard hat, you get to be the one to wear it. So, and guess who never wore the pink hard hat? Because I got this one. So we're going to put our hard hats. Everybody pull your hard hats out. Pull them out. Okay, put them on. Put your hard hats on. You're going to need it. Um, it's, there's, there's, there's going to, we're calling our hard hats God's grace. Because we're going to need a lot of it this morning. Uh, we need to cling to these tightly. There's going to be a lot of heavy things falling. Uh, it's going to hit some of us. Um, and uh, so we need our hard hats on. And we're going to build. Let's go ahead and begin reading in Luke chapter 6. Verse 46. Why do you call me, this is Jesus speaking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like the man building the house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Oh, merciful, holy God, we first just thank you for this glorious morning um, that you've given us. Um, as you have called us to fellowship together to worship you in song and in word and by participating in the sacred feast of communion. Father, we thank you for this privilege. Lord, we we pray for all believers as we gather this morning together communally around the world that each would be drawn to your throne and be transformed through our worship and our reading of the scriptures. Forgive us, O Lord, because we so often are not honest with ourselves. Lord, we, we build these great structures of life with no real foundation so oftentimes. And so, God, I pray that you would make us holy as we receive your word this morning, that you would cleanse us and purify us, We ask your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning as we receive your word and we give this time to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, when I was was born, uh, my mom and dad lived in a condo in 
La Palma. Anybody know where La Palma's at? Right near Buena Park there, along the 5 Freeway. It's a town that's like this big, and like it's in the middle of all these high-crime areas with no crime. And it's, it's weird. But my dad, was a, my dad was a police sergeant for the La Palma Police Department. He ended up uh, becoming the chief and eventually retiring from there. And they lived in this condo, and my sister was then born a little over a year after I was, and my parents decided they needed a bigger house. And so I think, I, I have very few early memories. This is one of my earliest memories. I was about two years old. Most people don't even have a memory that early, but I, had, I have one, and I, all I remember of it is this little area of dirt that was our, would soon to be our cul-de-sac there in Fullerton, uh, in, a, in this house that overlooked Gilman Park. And so the house was there, and as we went into the entryway, there were, there, there were workers on the left that were doing something. I have no clue. Um, I was two. Um, they could have been carpeting, flooring, or eating pizza. I have no clue. They could have been doing anything. But I remember them. And then I, I, I don't remember the kitchen to the forward of the, uh, you know, forward of us and the, and the family room that was kind of split level and down by the garage. But I do remember the stairs we went up that were right next to those. And you go up the stairs into the second story. And my dad showed, this was, I think the condo, I'm guessing it was a two bedroom because I, I think I had to share a room with my sister. I don't really remember that part, but this was a four bedroom house. And my dad showed me which room would be my sister Gina's and which room would be my room. It was so exciting. And then he brought me into the bathroom. This is the part I remember most vividly. I remember being in the bathroom and in that bathroom, there were two sinks. And so I, I remember asking daddy, um, is, is this sink my sink and that sink, sinks Gina's sink? And my dad said, yeah, that's your, that's your sink, Jeffrey. And so the entire like time that we lived there, I can't remember how long it was, maybe nine years, something like that. Um, I insisted that that was my sink. Nobody could use my sink in that bathroom, it, right? But, and I don't remember moving into the house, but it was the safest, most secure place I've ever known in my life. It was just this big, safe house. The eucalyptus lined streets and the park right below us, this neighborhood with these like big dramatic rolling hills and 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 all of that just shielded us from all the outside worries of the world. Mom always kept the house clean and tidy, their life plants. She had this decorating touch only a professional artist like her could have. And and I had all kinds of like I was I had problems in school. I was I was a bit bullied because I was this little redheaded mushroom-looking thing, and and I was this tiny kid with like severe learning disability and poor social skills, and but when I was home, nobody cared about that. I was home. Dad loved me. Mom loved me. Gina and I played with I don't know. We watched Scooby Doo a lot, um, and Tom and Jerry, and we watched all the good cartoons. They don't make good cartoons anymore, but uh, you know, Dad was home every night, right? And, and, and in the morning, you know, the sun would would come up and kind of filter through those eucalyptus trees and through the patio and through that sliding glass door and onto that kind of lighter, like brown carpet, like, like almost tan carpet, but darker. But and we, 
and I'd lay there and watch Scooby-Doo. And then in the evening, I'd, I'd come home after school and, and play outside. In the evening, I'd come home and I'd watch Chips before dinner in front of that TV that was like the box that sits on the ground, right? And, you know, and when, when I would lay in front of that television or I would sit in the living room and read a book or, or you know, I would take refuge in my bedroom that was all painted custom just for me, right? All the world's anxieties would just slip away. It was home. That's where I wanted to be. There was a problem, though. The house was built on a hill that had been poorly prepared by the builder. Some of you know where this is going, especially if you have construction experience. About the time that we started noticing cracks in the walls of the, and, and in the floor of the house, the problems in my parents' marriage began to appear. And about the time that we noticed the carpet beginning to tear and the linoleum floor stretching as the concrete crack below it spread and lifted, my mom moved from my parents' room into my baby brother's bedroom. And as the bulldozers leveled the four houses in our cul-de-sac, including my own, my parents' divorce became final. Everything that gave me any sense of security in my life at 11 years old had crashed down and crumbled into a worthless heap of nothing. And at almost 47 years old today, my security is in Jesus Christ, but I still suffer the trauma of that time in my life more than any other. And sadly, I'm not alone. And it's all too common for children who've suffered that tearing apart of their family through divorce, like me, to spend the rest of their lives feeling like they will never have that same feeling of security that they had when their childhood home was intact. Just like a home, a house that does not have a secure foundation is a worthless house, a marriage that's not grounded in the biblical principle of a lifelong covenant will not withstand the storms that inevitably come. And in the same way, a life that proposes to be Christian but does not have the foundation of obedience built upon the rock, Jesus himself will reveal in the end that it is a counterfeit Christian life and will fall when the storm of God's judgment comes. Let's look at that in Luke 6, verse 46. Keep your finger there in Luke 6, and we'll jump around a little bit. We'll be in Luke a lot today. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So before we move into another illustration, Jesus asks a direct question. It's as if to say, Why are you such a hypocrite? It goes back to what we read about two weeks ago when, when we talked about judging and Jesus says this. He says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out that, that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says. First take, out, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And if you remember last week, we saw Jesus discuss how good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. They, they can't bear one another's fruit. The tree cannot produce anything but the fruit that is in its nature to produce. And you might recall the word that was translated bad, uh, 
sapron, which is translated uh, as bad in our scripture, but it can, in our, our English text, but it can mean counterfeit. Luke 6, 43, it says, for no good fruit, or, or rather no good tree, rather, bears bad or counterfeit fruit, nor again does a bad or counterfeit tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, or yeah, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All of this is within the same sermon that Jesus is preaching. We've been, we've been covering that for several weeks. And so let's go back a little bit and revisit the context here. First off, the, the author is Luke. Um, he writes the gospel of Luke here. He's a, he's a Gentile writing to a, another Gentile by the name of Theophilus, who's probably some sort of high-ranking official. And the purpose of Luke's writing is clear in chapter 1. This is what it says in chapter 1, the first four verses. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And that's the name of our series, that you may have certainty. So Luke is answering the question, who is Jesus? Well, after Jesus is born of a virgin by the name of Mary, he grows up and then he's around 30. We see him come to be baptized by John the Baptist uh, and begin his public ministry. And he does this by demonstrating his authority over spiritual beings over illness and nature and what isn't isn't clean um, and he does a lot of that by performing miracles and, and people begin to follow him and among those disciples he then calls 12 apostles and in, in the midst of all of that the Pharisees who were the Jewish religious conservatives of the day began to question him because he did not behave as they expected him to he healed on the Sabbath. That was forbidden in their uh, rules. And he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. And tax collectors would have been considered traitorous thieves because they were, right? And, and so when we come upon this sermon, which has some strong similarities to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, also has some differences. We believe they're probably two different sermons with some of the same content. But it, and it could have been the same one recalled by different people based on their vantage point, what was most maybe striking to them at the time. But, but both sermons are most certainly summaries of larger sermons that Jesus preached. And so then we read a passage. It's important that we consider the audience. Now, generally, Luke's audience is a Gentile audience who's seeking to discover the truth about Jesus. Gentile just simply meaning not Jewish. However, Luke is recording something here that Jesus is saying, and Jesus, the, the audience Jesus has uh, here are his disciples, right? His followers, the people that are following, that claim to be disciples of Jesus. Luke 6.20, it says, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, and it continues on. 
he expresses then some beatitudes and woes. And then he says this in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And then it continues. I'd like to think that this broadens the audience. Um, like, like I said that when, when we covered that section, but, but in light of the context of what we're seeing today and last week, it also could have been that he was focused even more directly on his disciples um, at this point, knowing that he was going to be telling them to examine their hearts to be sure that they are not counterfeit disciples. And what that means applied today is that there can be among your faithful Christians that are in the church each week who serve in ministry and seem to be leading in some way, they, they do and say all the right things. They might be very knowledgeable about the Bible and hold, hold strongly to sound doctrine. They can be elders, deacons, pastors, and they can be counterfeit. So what's a counterfeit disciple? It's one who looks like a disciple outwardly, but on the inside does not produce the fruits of obedience. Looks very much like that cherry tomato. Remember last week, but it's actually the poisonous Jerusalem cherry. We talked about that last week. It looks like that tasty mushroom that you would like to just saute and put on your steak, but it's called a death cap and it'll kill you, right? Remember the death cap? Don't eat death cap. Like anything called death cap, not a good thing, right? But in this passage, Jesus is, is going to move from using nature to illustrate this point to using construction. That's why we have our hard hats on, right? And it, that would be something also that would be very well understood by the people of the time. And so it begins with, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's a natural question because we always act according to what we believe, right? Now, the counterfeit might believe any number of things, but most likely believes that if he or she does the right things, they'll please God. It's often a works-based righteousness that says something like, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, Lord, did we not go to church every week and listen to K-Wave on our way to work and tithe regularly and teach the kids and go on mission trips in your na name. Yeah, should we do those kind of things as Christians? Some of them, yeah, of course. We ought to pursue that, but that's not what saves us. It isn't about what we do, it's about who we know and what he's done on our behalf. True righteousness is not something we can produce on our own. Only Christ can make us righteous because he went to the cross to bear our natural unrighteousness upon himself. Only by his work can we become regenerate, created anew and be truly righteous. Most of us know that, but Jesus is speaking even to us. That... When it says that repeated word, when it says Lord, Lord, that's what, that was intimate. That was something that you would only say to somebody when you repeat their name or their title to somebody that you were very close to. These people who seem to love Jesus deeply, and yet this is how Jesus could respond to a person like that who is not sincere. 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? They seemed obedient, right? Why? See, this is exactly the problem that the religious Jewish conservatives of the day had. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23 about them. Matthew 23. Verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I will say readily that we're a biblically conservative church. What that means is simply, and like I said, biblically conservative, that means that we trust the inspiration, infallibility, and authority of the scriptures, and we seek to behave according to the plain meaning of scripture. That's what a biblical conservative is. But this passage is speaking to us. Because many of us put our hope in that knowledge that we have of the Bible and in our behavior instead of humbly recognizing our inability to apply those things inwardly and surrendering to the one whom the scriptures testify about. And that title, Lord, also denotes authority. And let's face it, in America, we neither like nor understand authority. When we recognize the lordship of Jesus, we submit to his authority both inwardly and outwardly because we believe in that authority. Because we always act according to what we believe, right? If we believe in his authority, it's going to show. Look at this, Luke, Luke 13, verses 23 to 27. It says, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I did not know where you came from. And then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and we taught in, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me all you workers of evil. Yikes. Lord, don't ever let that be me. Wow. Some of us don't even obey him outwardly, right? And, and here's the hard truth. And, we, and we, all, we all must face this really difficult truth. So make sure your hard hats are on for this one. I need mine. If you will not obey God, he is not your father. This is the truth. This is biblical. If you will not obey Jesus, he is not your Lord. Ouch. Anyone hear that hit their hard hats? And that's, that's what Jesus is communicating right here. There's an ancient heresy that I've faced among many professing Christians called antinomianism. 
It's the idea that grace means that Jesus died on the cross, so now we can do whatever pleases us because there's no such thing as sin anymore. Eh, false, right? And most people don't believe that. I've run into a lot of people that have, but, but here's, the, here's the scary thing. I can't count the number of people who say they reject that kind of false teaching, but then their lives prove that that is precisely what they believe. Because we always act according to what we believe. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says this to counter the antinomian thought. Do not think, he says, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Speaking about our passage in Luke, this is what R.C. Sproul says. He says, we are still focusing on this problem of making a profession of faith in Christ that is not a true one. That's what we're talking about. So, and, and you know, here's the thing. We, we so often, and I'm guilty of this, uh, we so often worry about the personal behaviors of other Christians. Uh, what they watch, what they listen to, what they drink, what they spend their money on, how much time they give to serving in the church. And, and we spend so much time worrying about that that we don't worry about our own behavior towards other people. And, and the thing is, the Bible's pretty clear. We love God by loving others, right? This is, this is what it means to pursue holiness. Listen to what it says in Micah 6. Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is verse 6, Micah 6, 6. With what shall I become, or with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk here's the key word humbly with your god my former professors writes j richard middleton he says this micah wonders if god wants excessive worship in the narrow sense consisting of burnt offerings thousands of rams even giving up his firstborn the answer of course is no Intimate fellowship with God requires our moral transformation. We must reflect on God's purposes for interpersonal righteousness and all our doings. Now, there's a lot I disagree with Dr. Middleton on, but I wholeheartedly agree with him there. Being a Christian isn't about talking the talk. It isn't about following a particular moral culture. It isn't about going to the right concerts or wearing the right T-shirts or having the right Christian decals on your car or eating the right Christian chicken sandwich. You know what I'm talking about, right? Shopping at the right hobby stores, right? It isn't about what you do or don't 
drink or watch. It isn't about how often you show up in church or what podcasts you listen to. It isn't about reading the right authors. It isn't about how you vote or what you post on social media. Those things are easy. That's why it's so easy to be a counterfeit Christian. You can even fool yourself with those things. In fact, Clint and I were talking about that this week and I felt that I should quote him, don't fool yourself. And he likes burritos too, you can tell. But, right? Being a Christian is about surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. It's what it's always been from the very beginning. That's why Jesus continues with a contrast, just like the Beatitudes and Woes, right here in verse 47. Verse 47, Luke 6, 47, he starts with the builder and the builder's character. This is a good builder. Listen, he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. You can come to Jesus great start. Listen, if you've, if you've never come to Jesus, we're not even talking about you. You need to come to Jesus, then we'll talk about you, okay? But, but the implication here is that both the true and the counterfeit Christian hear Jesus. They hear his words. Now, some of us cling to every word of the scriptures as we read them. And, and for others, reading the Bible is like listening to Charlie Brown's parents Remember like, wah, 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 wah. Remember that? Right? Like, like being on an airplane. Any, any of you spend as much time as I do flying in those giant flying tube buses and coach like in the fetal position, right? And then that flight attendant begins telling you how to put on a seatbelt, right? Like, and, and when they do that, you know what I hear? Wah, 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 wah right? Anybody else with me on that? Like, who actually sits there and pays attention to the flight attendant when you're sitting in coach? You're like, just, I mean, you're like, is that Curry? Like, you, right? We don't pay attention on an airplane. They, they could say the person in the seat that I'm sitting in just won a million dollars for the, being the millionth passenger, or they could say we're all going to die in five minutes. I would have no clue, because I don't listen, Right? And, and, and that's how attentive many of us are when we listen to Jesus sometimes, huh? But we need to listen to Jesus better than that if we have any hope of obeying him. Kent Hughes described it. He gave a, I think this is a good practice. He's always super practical to me. Um, he says this, what can we do to become good hearers of the word in church? Pray for the preacher and for yourself. I'm gonna stop there and just say, please, like, please, I need it. Like this week, I needed it. I'm going through this stuff and I'm like, I, I, can I even preach this? Wow, right? Pray, pray for the preacher and for yourself. Come prepared to listen, understanding that listening is work. The will to concentrate is fundamental. We cannot listen to God's word the way we watch TV, kicked back with a bag of chips and in hand or a pleasant daydreams occupying our minds. Keep your Bible open to the sermon text and try to turn about or, or and turn about to the other passages that are cited. Take notes. 
One of the curious byproducts of the Great Awakening in America was a sudden interest in shorthand. It was not unusual to see men and women, quill pens in hand, carrying portable ink wells as they hurried to a preaching service in the village green. The same thing happened in Scotland under similar circumstances. Revived hearts lead to scribbling hands. I like that. He also said, true hearing of the word also requires reflection and application. This is no easy task either because our, ours is a non-reflective age. And, and that's why at IBC we try to emphasize scripture memorization. Uh, and and I, here's a couple easy ways to help to memorize scripture. First off, read it over and over. But then recite it to yourself, maybe to others. And then somehow do it purposefully. So, so if it's something to say to saying to do something to your neighbors, do that. Do that one thing, right, for a neighbor. And, and that takes a lot of work and reflection because you have to figure out what it means, right? It takes a lot of work and reflection, but you won't forget it if you do that. Hear it and do it. Hear it and do it. Hearing the words of Christ is a pointless practice if we're not willing to do what it says, right? Verse 48, it says, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Now, the rock is an illustration of Jesus, right? The authority of Jesus. The foundation that built, that's built upon the rock in this uh, metaphor is doctrine and obedience, right? That is knowing Jesus and following him. That's the foundation, and the foundation is built on the rock of his authority. It's, it's anchored to it, right? Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. That's, that's another way of saying the scriptures. Right? Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, the authority of God's word is our foundation, which is laid upon and anchored to Christ Jesus and his authority. That is a deep foundation that will withstand any storm. There, there are a lot of similarities uh, between the climates in Israel and the climate in Southern California. Um, growing up in Temecula, after, after they raised the houses in, in, in Fullerton, my parents were divorced. We moved, my mom moved us to Temecula, and I grew up there uh, the rest of my uh, childhood, early adulthood. And we knew exactly what a river was. What a river is, is it's this really sandy area, right? And then every now and then, Maybe once or twice a year, it fills with rushing water for like half a day, right? And, and then it's sand again. Israel uh, has similar dry riverbeds. And during Israel's two rainy seasons, the riverbeds swell up, and you don't want to get caught in them because they become like mini tsunamis. And that's the kind of flood that the Jews listening to Jesus here would have in mind when he's saying these things. Well, in that house in Fullerton, you, you couldn't see the foundation. The foundation's under the house, right? From the street, the house just looked like this big, beautiful, well-taken-care-of, two-story, split-level, middle-class home. But deep down, the home was worthless, right? Any, any house with no foundation is worthless, right? 
I asked Wayne that because he's a contractor. I'm just an electrician. Or I was not an electrician anymore. But I've given that up. Uh, repented of it. But they... No, uh, Wayne's a... Wayne's a, 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 a contractor and I said yeah is, is that true is, is, is a house without a foundation worthless he says absolutely without question right in the end the builder had to buy back all of those buy out all the homeowners for obviously whatever the houses whatever the, the appreciation on the houses would have been and then destroy what they had built in the first place it cost them more than had they just not built the houses in the first place. And the reason for that is what you couldn't see, the foundation was built upon a lie. It was built upon soil that was inadequate to support the house. Had the house been built upon a strong foundation that was married to good soil or stone, the house would remain today. And I just checked on Realtor and the comps in the area are well over a million dollars right? So it, it would have been more like our house in New York that withstood more than 100 years of lake effect snows and, and storms and thunderstorms and, and all of that, but like worth like a tenth of that, um, less than a tenth. Um, but, but the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it was well built. It's interesting how Jesus identifies a well-built house with a strong foundation. This week I was thinking about what it looks like to be a counterfeit. And I had this dream in the middle of the week. It haunted me. And in my dream, I was having a conversation. And in the course of the conversation, I had realized that I was living in sin. But as the dream progressed, I realized also that I wasn't so much worried about the sin as I was about what people would think if they found out and that it might disqualify me from ministry. In that dream, I was a counterfeit. I was a counter. I was a fraud that was not broken or sorry for the sin, but was avoiding it because of the consequences. See, self, self-preservation is not the same as being fully surrendered to Christ. Yes, we should flee God's wrath. That's important. Jesus says that. But repentance isn't just turning from sin. It's turning to God. Otherwise, we're just turning towards another form of rebellion. And in my dream, in the case of my dream, what I was doing was I was turning from one kind of sin to turning my self-image and ministry into idols, which is another kind of sin. I woke up from that dream, and I'm going to be honest with you, even though I knew that it was just a dream, it reminded me of how vulnerable I am how vulnerable I can be to being, or, or to rather to counterfeit repentance. And I was shaken up for like two day, like a day and a half or two days. I was shaken up over that dream, um, even though it wasn't real. It was just, and that's what I get for thinking about my sermon as I'm falling asleep. Um, if, you, if you ever become a pastor, do something else um, when you're falling asleep. You might remember John the Baptist calling the crowd's brood of vipers and warning them to flee from the wrath to come. Yes, that's something we should do. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is doing here. 
but he's giving us the alternative, which is obedience. This is what he says in verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation, where the stream broke against it and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. See, you can build the most beautiful home in the world, but without a foundation, it is worthless. There needs to be some kind of foundation, whether it be a concrete slab with strong footings or, or, or pylons or some other way to anchor the structure. I was an electrician, so I only re really dealt with foundations when it came to laying underground conduit and, and stuff. But, but I do know that there's a whole section in the building code in California dealing with foundations. And here, we don't deal with the same kind of risks of storms that they have in the Midwest and different places, right? What, what do our foundations need to protect our homes from? Earthquakes. That's a first day. You know that. Like, that's the first thing we think of, right? If the building doesn't have a foundation, what's going to happen to it in an earthquake? It's going to get leveled. Even a small earthquake can level a house with no foundation. It doesn't take much to level a house that is not built on good soil with a good foundation. But if we have a good foundation, we can build something that will stand, withstand a pretty good-sized earthquake, right? And some of you can speak with more authority on that, but it doesn't take an engineer to figure out that it starts, it all starts at the ground level. In 1990, 85% of the U.S. population reported being Christians. And in 2014, that was down to about 75%. And in 2020, that had fallen dramatically to 65% with about 30 to 35% of them being evangelicals. And when you look at the statistics on world view and behavior, those claiming to be Christians are typically not vastly different than the rest of the population. What does that tell us about how many counterfeit Christians there are even among us? I think the drop in numbers of people claiming to be Christians may just reflect a that non the non-Christian population is just more honest. It used to be more cool to be a Christian, and it's just, now they're like, I don't want to be one of them, right? In fact, here's, here's, the, here's the, the hard truth. One study found that 74% of evangelical teenagers claims to believe in abstinence before marriage. Only, I wish it was more than that, I'm telling you. They also were more likely to believe that sex before marriage would not be as pleasurable and would cause their partner to lose respect for them. But they were also more, more sexually active than Mormon, mainline Protestant, and Jewish teens and were having sex at a younger age than almost any other group. Those are our teens. Those are our kids that, that are growing up in the church. Keep in mind that statistics aren't always reliable and consistent, but this demonstrates what Jesus is pointing to. Why would Jesus be scolding his followers for not following him? Because many of them weren't. And the same holds true today. Those statistics are consistent with the New Testament. It, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh God, don't let that be me. Titus 1, 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable. 
disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, most people in our culture do claim to believe God, but they live like they don't. And usually I would say they're probably frauds where we always act according to what we believe. And if we believe in the authority of Jesus in our lives, our lives will reflect that. And if we say we believe in the authority of Jesus and we hear him, but we do not build our foundation on him in obedience, we will fall. In fact, the storm that's being spoken of here is not just pointing to any little difficulty in life. It's speaking to God's judgment, to Christ's judgment. Acts 10.42 says this, says he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. What Jesus has done in this whole section of his sermon that we have examined over the last several weeks is to highlight the importance of self-examination. Keep in mind, we're going to sin. We're, we're going to disobey God at times because we are in corrupted, broken bodies. And we have temptations. But if we're true repentance, we're, or if we're true Christians, we're going to repent of that. And even if we've built a foundation of obedience anchored to the authority of Christ, we'll still blow it at times, right? Because we're building a whole structure, right? The only perfect part of that will be the rock that it's anchored to. But we need to examine ourselves to see if we're sincere. Are we truly repentant Christians? We need to examine ourselves to be sure that we are not fraudulent Christians. If we've rooted ourselves in obedience to God's word and the Bible and obedience to Christ, we, we have, or if, rather if we have not rooted ourselves in obedience to God's word, in obedience to Christ in the Bible, we have no foundation and our fall will be great when our day of judgment comes. But if we have, we will withstand judgment by his righteousness that he has imputed to us. So how do we do that? Acts 2.42, probably one we should have highlighted in our Bibles. Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. In other words, being in fellowship and a good Bible teaching church is how the apostles built their foundation. Does anyone have a better plan than that? Listen, I dare not speak of a better plan that would add, to take, add or take away from God's word. Can you be a Christian without the church? I mean, the, the short, simple answer is pretty much no. I know, it's not a popular thing to say because our culture emphasizes the individual. Well, my relationship is between me and him. Well, the funny thing is, is that's not what God says in the scriptures. We must have fellowship and general accountability with one another in the church. How does God usually work? Through his people. And if we're avoiding his people, we're avoiding him. 
R.C. Sproul said, to be grounded in the word of God is to dig the foundation of your life down to bedrock, where you take that word, you embrace that word, and you're able to stand against anything, the world, the flesh, and the devil throw at you. And, and listen, that is something that is designed to be done in community. In the church. That's not to minimize personal Bible study. We should all be doing that. We should be memorizing scripture. We should be reading the Bible, you know, hopefully daily, but it really is only relatively recently that everyone even had access to the scriptures in their home. Uh, in the time of the apostles, scrolls and books were handwritten. They were very expensive and very rare, and they degraded pretty quickly. You had to go to synagogues, or in the case of the early church, to a wealthy person's home, in order to read any of those things. And that was if you were among the few people who could actually read. During that time, people would go and they would hear it read and they would memorize it and that's what they would take back to their homes. They did it in community from the very beginning. What makes us think that we shouldn't now? The church community is where we can read and study together to understand God's word so that we're not running around with weird ideas. That isn't to affirm some of the Roman Catholic ideas of the Reformation period. They, they insisted that people have to trust the priest to interpret the scriptures for them. No, that's just false. It's not about a priest or a pastor, right? Because I'm just as infallible as anybody, you know. But... And, and, and yeah, you know what? Some of us do have that education. We have experience. We've put a lot of time into exegeting the scriptures and studying them and all of that. But it's never, it's about the community. It really is about the community. None of us is any more infallible than anyone else. We're all broken. For our life groups, the men's study is going to move towards sermon-based discussion. It provides more opportunity to question and discuss what takes place here. And, you know, listen, there are th small things that can get us into trouble, right? They can get us. They can hit us. Little storms. But you know what? We can withstand those attacks, particularly if we're doing it together. And there are even some counterfeit Christians who will probably withstand those attacks. But when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, that's when it all comes down. Will our house stand? As we prepare for communion, it's time, a time for self-examination. It's time to reflect and repent, commit to caring for that foundation. And it's hard. What kind of, what kind of builder are you? Like the tree, what kind of tree are you? Do, you? do you by nature produce good fruit or counterfeit fruit? And just like the tree, the natural builder in us is corrupt. We'll cut corners to build a house that looks great on the outside, but has no integrity to withstand the storm. Only by the work of Christ can he miraculously transform you into a good builder who takes the time to lay a deep foundation of obedience and a foundation that's anchored to Christ. As we prepare for communion, make this a time of repentance and renewal, a time to devote ourselves to humility as we look upon the authority that we lay our foundation upon, knowing that Jesus humbled himself to receive upon his body the due penalty for our sins, and that he places his perfect righteousness by his grace, in which we can call him Lord, Lord, 
and then we could submit to his authority in joyful obedience. Let's pray. Our holy God, we surrender to the production of our every fruit to you as we prayed last week. God, we pray that you would help us to examine our hell, ourselves, that we would build a strong foundation of obedience and submission to you, anchored to your authority. God, forgive us. Lord, if there's anyone here that is not a true Christian, if there are any counterfeits here, I pray that they would be convicted. I pray that they would be regenerated. And I pray that right now they would begin to lay that foundation of obedience upon the rock. God, forgive us. God, make us real. God, let us be obedient Christians and be present with us, Lord, as we pray, as we prepare, Lord, to receive your sacred feast that you have set before us. Thank you for Jesus who has removed from us the debt of sin and called us to follow him. It is by your unending grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that terrible, beautiful cross. Humble us now, Lord, we pray, as we prepare to receive this feast in the name of our Lord Jesus.